so, Father God, in the name of Jesus, we bless you in this place today. We thank you, Lord God, that this earth is not all there is. That for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have a future and a hope. We have something, Lord God, that goes beyond bank accounts. We have something, Lord God, that goes beyond zip codes. We are not taking any of this stuff with us. Naked we were born into this world, and naked we shall return. So, Father God, I pray that you would recalibrate our hearts to what really matters. And what really matters, Lord God, is you and a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. God, someone's in the house today, Lord God, and Satan done told them wrong. And they are thinking, Lord God, that life is about the stuff in this life. I pray, Lord God, that by your spirit you would radically redirect their attention, that you would save souls in this place. So that in, Lord God, I'm available to you. Use me, Father God, I pray. May the seed of your word fall on good soil. May it take root. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. It's great to be here with you all this week. If you have your Bibles, please meet me back in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. This is week 5. Last week, my plan was to get all the way through uh, Galatians chapter 3, but it kind of got good to me, so I only got one point um, last week in. Uh, So I've got two points to give today, which typically I give three, but... So that means either this message is going to be twice as long as last week, because I only gave one. Today I've got two points. Uh, I doubt it. Uh, we'll, we'll be on the shorter side of things. Good week for me. I uh, spent some time with um, um, several hundred uh, football players from the uh, NFL, and I uh, had the privilege of seeing 40 of them get baptized uh, who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So that was, that was awesome. Uh, these... These men, what's funny is uh, I got there late one night and then next morning I thought I'd catch in a quick workout, lift some weights, walked in and there's Jameis Winston and Russell, West, uh, Russell Wilson and I said, I'm going to get on the elliptical. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, but it's, it's just a stark reminder. Here are these millionaire, very famous individuals who are saying not content, that there's something more to this life. And uh, I know some of you all are thinking, well, let me at least, let me find that out on my own, right? But I'm telling you, there is something more to this life. Galatians chapter 3, pick me up in verse 1. Let me read the whole chapter to us again this week. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul. Paul says these words. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as, make note of this verse, we'll unpack it today, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, verse 7, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, verse 15, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Do you see what he's saying? Abraham was saved before the law. So why are you trying to live by the law? The law does not save. For, verse 18, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. We talked about that last week. Until the offspring offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You hear what he's saying there? If the law could have saved you, why did Christ come? But the scripture imprisoned everything, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, our guardian, our guardian, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I love this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no one in Los Altos and East Palo Alto. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Several years ago, there was a small town in the Far East in which a rumor was going about. The rumor was there was a young woman in this town who was having rather regular and frequent visions of Jesus. The local bishop in that town heard about it and he got in in contact with this young woman. He says, young lady, I've been hearing that, that there's, um, 
there's been a sense in which you've been having visions of Jesus. Is this rumor true? The young woman says, yes, Bishop, it is true. I have regular and frequent visions of Jesus. And in these visions, Jesus and I dialogue and discourse regularly. The bishop somewhat cynically said, well, next time Jesus shows up to you in a vision and you have a conversation with him, I want you to ask him to tell you all of the sins I confessed at my last confessional. The young woman said, Bishop, that's a, that's a pretty vulnerable request there. Are you sure you want me to ask Jesus that? The bishop says, absolutely. Next time he shows up, I want you to solicit from him to get him to tell you all the confessions that I confess at my last confessional. The young lady said, Absolutely. A couple days later, she got in touch with the bishop and she said, Bishop, I want you to know Jesus showed up to me in a vision. And he, he and I had a dialogue and a discourse. And we talked about you. The bishop said, well, then did you do what I asked you to do? Did you tell him to tell you all of the sins that I confess at my last confessional? The young woman said, absolutely, Bishop, that's exactly what I did. I said, Jesus, please tell me all of the sins this local bishop has confessed at his last confessional. Well, the bishop said with tiptoe anticipation, what did he say? The woman said, Jesus told me, I can't remember. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is not just that our sins have been forgiven, but in some way, shape, or form, the omniscient, all-knowing God has forgotten our sins. The Bible declares that he will remember our sins no more. I'm not sure if this means literally from a cognitive perspective, but forgotten from a punitive perspective, that, that Jesus Christ does not hold our sins against us. That as far as the east is from the west, is as far as he has removed our sins from us. Oh, if I was in a chocolate church, we'd be shouting right about now, running some laps around this sanctuary, tearing the carpet up. That's good news. To know that my sins have not only been paid for, but they have been removed as far as from the east is from the west. They are no longer held against us. We have been set free for Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. They've been forgotten. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This year we've been taking a plunge into the gospel. All this year, we are going to play one note, and one note only, the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we said, my friend J.D. Greer kind of came up with this phrasing, is we said that the gospel is not just the diving board. It is not just something that catapults us into a relationship with God. It is also the pool. It is the waters we must immerse ourselves in daily. We must learn to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We must learn to understand that, yes, we are desperately needy. Yes, we are completely helpless. Yes, we are deeply loved. And yes, we are fully embraced. 
This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now some of you may be wondering, how does this apply to how I live on a daily basis? The gospel applies in every single way for how you and I live our lives. If you are resting deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will profoundly impact your relationships with others. However, if you are resting deeply in the gospel of the law, this works-oriented performance outlook and perspective on life, that too will have a dramatic impact with how you relate with others. Let me just give you one quick illustration of this. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a profound story. I guess all of his stories were profound, by the way. But in this one, he talks about a young man who is in debt to a king for for the sum total of 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. This is amazing because in Jesus' day, the annual budget to run the region of Galilee was 300 talents. This man owes 10,000 talents. I don't know what his interest rates are. If ever there's an indication in scripture for predatory lending, (laughs) this is it. This guy owns owes 10,000 talents. Now, one talent for some people was a year's worth of wages. What this man owes, to get it into an American context, is like putting China's debt on one individual. It's like putting on what America owes to China to one individual. But in an insane act of grace, the king forgives him. Forgives him millions, if not billions of dollars. You know what this man does? He then goes and finds someone who owes him what amounts to be a few dollars. And begins to choke him saying, pay what you owe. He refuses to let this man go. The king who just let him go of China's debt says to him in so many words, are you kidding me? Here I have released you from millions, if not billions of dollars, and you are tripping because this one individual owes you a couple of dollars? This is what God communicates through his son Jesus as it relates to the gospel. Jesus says when we don't understand the gospel, you and I will contract something called spiritual amnesia. When we don't swim deeply in the gospels of Jesus and are reminded daily that we are forgiven of all of our sins, we will not be forgiving people. So what Jesus is trying to get at here is, when you forget the gospel, and all that God has done for you, when you are out of sync with the reality that but for the grace of God, there go I, you will in turn be a performance-oriented person who trips off of the slightest thing someone else does. I see this all the time in in the body of Christ, where you want to look at people and go, wait wait a minute, let, let me get this straight. God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven every sin you have committed, are committing, and will ever commit, and you ain't speaking to her because one time she talked about you. That is the epitome of biblical hypocrisy. Listen to me, I'm, I'm sitting here right now, I'm talking to some individuals. You, you, aren't, you aren't talking to somebody in your life, you aren't talking to somebody in your family, you aren't, you aren't talking to a coworker, or whatever, and you can call it whatever it is. At the end of the day, it's kind of unforgiveness. An unforgiving Christian, thank you, one person back there clapped. An unforgiving Christian, hear it now, is an oxymoron. 
An unforgiving Christian, to put it in in even better, more concise terms, is a Christian who ain't swimming in the deep waters of the gospel. This ain't about whether or not you need to be reconciled with them. This ain't about whether or not you need to get back into friendship with them. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two completely different things. You can forgive without being reconciled, but you can't be reconciled without forgiving. So I just want you to understand something here. When you understand that, man, I'm glancing at the rearview mirror of my journey with Jesus. I'm not staring at the rearview mirror, but I glance at it from time to time. And I understand the depths in which God saved me. I understand that there was a time in my life when I was that individual you would call in college to have a good time with. When I understand how many one night stands God has forgiven me of. I now become not a cul-de-sac of God's forgiveness where it just sits. I now become a boulevard. So this is wildly important to us. When I understand that I am receiving and living and existing and drafting off of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That now makes me gracious to others. So if you're unforgiving, if you're ungracious, if you're sexist, if you're racist, if you're classist, if you pull up to your house, wherever it may be, Los Altos, wherever it may be, and something in you goes, thank God I don't live in such and such a zip code. You ain't living the gospel. So this is why I'm telling you, this is extremely practical. When you really come to terms with the gospel, it will revolutionize your relationships with others. Some of you all at the end of the day, I'm trying to save you 150 bucks uh, an hour for your marriage counseling. I'm not anti-therapy. All right. Some of y'all here are therapists. I'm a pastor. You messing with my business now. Um, I'm not anti-therapy, but listen. Some of y'all, I can save you a lot of money. Just live the gospel. See, when you live the gospel in the context of your own marriage, and when you understand that God does not relate to you by your performance, but by the performance that Jesus Christ put on for you on a hill called Calvary, now what happens is I don't grade my wife based on her performance. I don't grade my husband based on his performance. That joker didn't take the trash out again. I done told him millions of times to take out the trash and uh, he's going to come tapping me on my shoulder later on this evening. One to get blessed. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. But anyways, (laughs) but when you understand God blesses you in spite of you, that none of us up in here really get what we deserve, praise God, that changes the ball game and how I relate to other people. When you understand that we serve a God who is a glass half full God, who, who, who believes the best in us, even though he sees the worst in us. Now we stop being suspicious of other people. Some of us rush to make indictments of other people and we don't even know all the facts. So the gospel changes everything. Bless you. So here we are talking about the law. Last week, we talked about the assets of the law. We talked about the law being the 613 system of do's and don'ts 
rule after rule after rule after rule after rule that canvassed and covered everything from don't eat shellfish, don't eat pork, none of that stuff. Even though, you know, gluten-free pork is okay, all that stuff. We, we examined it to what should a woman do when that time of the month comes. This was the law. And one of the things that we saw last week is that Paul tells us one of the great benefits of the law is it exists to reveal our own transgressions, our sense of neediness. That once you understood as you were going to the temple yet again with another bull, with another, you know, calf, with another goat, with another lamb to offer another sacrifice to, to atone for something you messed up on again for the umpteenth time, it clicked all of a sudden. I can't keep this. There is no way possible I can keep this standard. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount lately? We can't keep it. We cannot keep this standard. Again, Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust in her heart, I won't ask for a show of hands. But ain't none of us brothers up in here have aced that one for our whole entire lives. So what you understand is what God already knows. You can't keep it. 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 So stop basing your identity off of it. So the law exists. The benefit of the law is it is meant to drive us to our need for Jesus Christ. I can't love my neighbor as myself. I can't do unto others as I would have them do unto me. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And God understands this. So the law reveals sin. I see that sin in me. And I'm now driven to the one who can give me a new heart and who can cover my sin. That is the asset of the law. Today I want to show you the liabilities of the law. One of the things that's just clear is, as Paul is, is writing our text, he gives us, he's really painting in broad strokes, the liabilities of the law. And that is the law has way more liabilities than assets. He's going to give us four of them. Uh, the first one he's going to show us is that the law, one of the major liabilities of the law, is that the law brings us into bondage. Now, look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive, held captive, held captive under the law, imprisoned, imprisoned, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Later on, he talks about the law being a guardian. So one of the things that we understand is the law does not bring freedom. It imprisons us. What Paul is saying fundamentally is when your approach to life is rules, 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 that's not freedom. That's bondage. When my sons um, were about 12 years old, I'd always have a talk with them, and we'd take a walk through the neighborhood. And, and typically what would happen is we would see a, um, uh, we'd see a person walking their dog with or without a leash. And I'd always tell my sons, we're about to enter into your teenage years, and um, here's how this thing's going to go down. I remember one time saying to one of my sons, uh, there's this master walking, uh, there's this person walking a dog, but the dog doesn't have a leash. I says, you know why that dog doesn't have a leash? Because the master can trust that when it tells that dog to do something, it'll do it. The reason why you put a leash on a dog is because you have to rein them in because you don't trust them that they have the maturity to handle their freedoms well. That's why you put a leash on a dog. 
So I, I would tell my sons, here's how it's going to go down for your teenage years. If you want freedom, you've got control over that. You have control over that. If you prove yourself to be immature, there's going to be a leash. And you keep proving yourself immature. That leash is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And why? Because you do that for immature people who cannot handle their freedoms. You restrict them. And you keep them under bondage. You know what the New Testament calls a person who views their sense of righteousness and self-worth based on rules? Calls them weak. Weak. Now, now for some of us, actually for all of us, this is actually good. All of us in this room, we have weak areas of our lives in which we have to keep a close watch on and we have to safeguard. For me, I've been very vulnerable with you. Uh, whenever I travel, whenever someone invites me to come preach, my, my assistant sends them a form letter. I'm not a diva at all. I don't charge. Whatever you want to give me, don't, you know, whatever the Lord puts on your heart, that's fine. But there are a list of things that, that have to be in order and it's outlined in this cover letter. Don't send no woman to come pick me up from the airport. I just, I can't be alone one-on-one with them. There's just, there's just a list of stuff, list of rules I have to have. Why? Because in that area of my life, I'm weak. So my dad taught me, don't give the devil a stick to hit you upside the head with. Um, but when, when there's weak areas to your life, you got to have rules. Some of you all are alcoholics. And you got to own that. This is an area of weakness. And when there's weakness, there must be rules. That's just you. It's just you. I mean, my, my boys all the time see this scene. I'm sitting in my, in my chair, typically on a Sunday afternoon, scrolling through the channels. I want to watch something, and it says restricted. And in front of my boys, I got to go, Corey, uh, you know, this thing is PG-13. It's totally appropriate. Just type in the code. I don't even know the code. I don't even know the code. And my boys see that. And we have dialogues about it. Let me just keep it real. I I, I tell my boys, this is an area of weakness for me. We got computers in our house. They ain't in my boys' rooms. They're in an open space. Why? Because when there's weakness, there needs to be safeguards and we safeguard with rules. Now, here's here's the deal. Jesus actually calls self-righteous people who base their esteem and their relationship with God on rules, he says, if your whole relationship with me is based on rules, you're not as strong as you'd like to say you are. You're actually the weak person. You're actually in bondage to your own self-righteousness. So if you're sitting here today and you're going, I'm a really great Christian because I keep all these rules, have my quiet times, I pray, I do this, I do that, I do this, and I do that. God says to you, that's actually not a sign of strength. It's actually a sign of weakness. Leads me to the second thing. The law is not just bondage. But the law, when I base my relationship with God off of a list of do's and don'ts, God now becomes this impersonal force to me. He's not a real living person. Whenever there's this rules orientation, see, that, that, that depersonalizes God. So, so now God is not 
someone living and active who's created and called you into a relationship, he's a person that you got to tap dance for. Now, have you ever heard Michael Jackson re- refer to his father? What, what, what do you call his father? Called him Joseph. He never called him dad. Why didn't he ever call him dad? Because Joseph was hell bent on making sure his sons made it to the big time. And in Gary, Indiana, he'd come home from work, move the furniture to the, to up against the walls of the living room, would stand there with a belt in hand and make sure the choreography went well. And if it didn't go well, he would beat the living daylights out of them. And so at the end of the day, his sons called him Joseph and not dad because, because Joseph was an impersonal being. He wasn't a personal loving dad. Some of y'all don't know God as a personal loving being. He's impersonal to you. Again, you know, one of my sons the other day, um, you know, Corey and I were talking about this. And, you know, you know, I, I, again, I got three teenage boys. Love, love my boys dearly. And with one of my sons, I just felt like, man, I'm just in this season. You ever felt like this as a parent where, man, you're just getting on this person's case all the time. And, and, and it's like it's directive after directive after directive after directive and punishment after punishment after punishment after punishment. And I got convicted of this in the middle of that. And, and, and so I shocked him. Gave him something he didn't deserve. He says, come on, let, let's, let, let's go out to the driving range and let's just go hit golf ball. So, so we, we go out and spend an afternoon together, rich time. Then we come home and I call him outside. We're, we're sitting, by the, sitting by the fire pit. And, and I said, listen, listen. I said, in a couple of years, you're going to be up out of my house. And I said, when you're 30 years old and we're hanging out, it would kill me as a dad if you looked back over your time in my house and the only thing you could think was rule after rule after rule after rule after rule. Here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember hours at the driving range. I don't want you to remember rules. I I want you to look back and just think of times of enjoyment with your dad. Let me set you free. I think you're way more hung up on reading through the Bible in a calendar year than God is. I think you're way more hung up on your morality than God is. I think your giving record means way more to you than it does to God. I'm not here to say don't be moral. I'm not here to say don't read the Bible through in a year. What I am saying is God is our father. When he taught us to pray, he says, we're to pray this way. Our father, not our rule giver. He is our dad. And some of us don't know how to relate to him as dad. So I think it kills God to think that you've got to somehow, some way you've bought into the notion 
I've got to do certain things for God to like me. And the reason why you take that to God is because that's how your earthly father treated you. God wants you to understand this. I ain't nothing like your earthly dad. He's a good, good father. It's who he is. And so here's the problem. Have you ever felt this way? See, this is me. I'm, I'm an achiever-based personality. I'm a check-it-off-the-list kind of guy. Have you ever come to the end of a quiet time going, yeah, checked it off the list, but I didn't really spend time with him? I don't know what it's like to just sit in his presence and to just enjoy him for who he is. Third, when I give myself to the law, I'm giving myself to bondage. I'm now reducing, secondly, God from a personal being to an impersonal being. But then third, what does that create? Anxiety. Anxiety. When God becomes Joseph Jackson to us, when we picture and posture God as someone waiting, us, waiting on us to make the mistake, that's anxiety. That's anxiety. That's the kind of relationship, and this is Paul's language, that's the kind of relationship a slave has with a master. Obedience born out of anxiety. Martin Luther, again, we've been talking a lot about Martin Luther here. I I want you to listen to this. This This is so, so good. Listen to what he says. Although I lived a blameless life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. I also could not believe that I had pleased him with my works. Far from loving that righteous God who punished sinners, I actually loathed him. I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that if ever a monk could get to heaven by monastic discipline, I was that monk. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. Do you know one time Martin Luther went to confession for six hours? I know I done done some stuff, but six hours? That's some of you. In fact, may I even say some of you are here. You came to church today out of anxiety. I didn't do it right. So let me get some, some worship on. It's kind of hand sanitizer for my soul. Let me just scrub down. It was a rough week. Again, you've heard me say this before. You must always see the grace of God paired with his omniscience. His omniscience means he's all-knowing, which means this. He knew what you would do before you did it. And he still saved you. Your failure does not surprise him. Now, again, again, I got to be careful. Can this be used the wrong way? Absolutely. I am not talking about, well, now that I understand that, let me just go out and do my thing. And no, 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 no. When you really understand grace, when you really get grace, it ain't licensed to sin. It's licensed to holiness. Fourthly and finally, the law leads to bondage. The law makes God impersonal. 
The law leads to anxiety. But fourthly and finally, we cannot be saved by the works of the law. Paul is clear in verse 11. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You can't quiet time your way into into the kingdom. You can't tithe your way into the kingdom. You can't be celibate long enough to get into the kingdom. If you could do any of those things, then Christ was a fool for dying on the cross. So check that box. I cannot, it's like asking a four-year-old to dunk a basketball on a 10-foot regulation goal. That's as silly as thinking the law can save me. No, the law exposes you. The law says you can't do it. So let me point you to the one who did do it. Jesus Christ. Let's go home on this one. Paul is clear. The law can't do it. Anytime I give myself to a system of do's and don'ts, that I give myself to a checklist and, and do these things and do these things and do, trying to earn good favor with God, that is insufficient. It leads to bondage. But now he shows us the better way of the gospel. Look at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is so good. Remember, the reason why Paul writes the Galatians is here, here he is. He's come and shared the good news of Jesus Christ with them. In fact, he would tell us in verse 1, O foolish Galatians of chapter 3, who has bewitched you is before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. The idea of publicly portrayed, we talked about this last week. It is the idea of a poster. Paul is saying, I came to you. I, I exposed the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, like a poster, like a mural, and you bought in. But now Paul is upset because the Judaizers in his place has come and they've come, these ethnic Jews who are saying we're followers of Jesus Christ. They're now saying that what Jesus Christ did was not good enough. You must now add to the cross of Jesus Christ the works of the law. And we've been saying it every single week. Paul is very clear that Christ plus anything equals nothing. Whereas Christ plus nothing equals everything. No doubt, here are the Judaizers, they have shared this with the Galatians, and now the Galatians are trying to, here they have, they have have drunk the 200 proof grace of the gospel, and now they're chasing it with the law. And now Paul comes, and Paul says, not so fast. Here's Paul. He's riding right on the trails of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, these ethnic Jews, have, have come to the Galatians. And no doubt they have used Abraham as an example, as, as one who substantiates their claims. Now Paul, masterful, verse 6 is, oh, since they're talking about Abraham, let me use Abraham. Because Abraham actually does not substantiate the law. He negates the law. He actually makes my point about the gospel. Look at verse 6 again. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When does this happen? He's quoting from Genesis chapter 15. Watch it. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, the father of the Jews, gets saved. Two chapters later, Genesis chapter 17, he gets circumcised. Which means this, even under the Old Testament paradigm, faith precedes works. He is saved before circumcision. 
Not only that, he gets saved in Genesis 15, but it's not until 430 years later that the law comes. Which means he's saved even before the law. Not only that, not only that, if you read Abraham, and this really encourages me, after he gets saved in Genesis 15, what is Abraham's sin? He does this over and over and over and over again. He lies, he lies, he lies, he lies. So that here is God. He saves him before the law. He saves him before circumcision. And he saves him in the midst of his sin. God does not say to Abraham, if you want a relationship with me, stop lying first. He doesn't say to Abraham, if you want a relationship with me, go to the synagogue first. He doesn't say to Abraham, if you want a relationship with me, go to the temple first, offer a sacrifice first. He just sees him as is, saves him as is, accepts him as is, loves him as is, but never leaves him as is. This is the scandal of the gospel. God does not say, you want a relationship with me? Stop pornography first. You want a relationship with me? Break up the affair first. You want a relationship with me? Stop gossiping first. No, God sees us as is, accepts us as is, loves us as is, saves us as is, yet by his grace never leaves us as is. This is the beauty of the gospel. When my boys were born, Pastor Blake made mention of this and it took my, it took my mind back. All three of my boys are born and the, the nurse, just moments, these little suckers have just come into the world. Just moments into the world, the nurse goes, uh, Mrs. Loritz, uh, Mrs. Loritz, would you like us to circumcise your son? And I'm like, of course. Of course. I don't want you being 30-something years old. We didn't take care of that. And you all of a sudden getting upset at me because there's a time we could do it when you wouldn't remember. Do it right now. Watch this. Even uncircumcised, they were still my child. Circumcision didn't make them my child. Regardless of whether or not they got circumcised, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Abraham gets saved and he's uncircumcised. The law does not save you. Now here's the question. Let's park the car here. Call it a day. This is my hope for abundant life. This is why I'm excited to be your pastor. This is why I'm excited to go on this journey all year long with you. What happens when you get a whole community, not just one person, but a whole body of believers who says we are going to drink the gospel of grace and will not chase it with the law? What happens when you get a whole community of believers to buy into this? Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says here, very important. He picks on the three biggest issues that divided people then and now. Race, class, and gender. He says, when you get a whole community to buy in, parenthetically, he's not saying, he's not subscribing to a colorblind ethic when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek. See, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So God made me black. You, you with me on that? I'm a black man. 
I don't believe God pulled a Stevie Wonder when he made me. Part of what it means to be fearfully and wonderfully made, he made me a black man. And as such, there's certain things I'm ethnically biased against. I don't hike. I don't eat mayonnaise sandwiches. I don't ski. I know some, well, I'm in the Bay, so black people do those things. But I'm an East Coast black man. We don't do that stuff. But here's the deal. I subjugate my blackness to my Jesusness. I don't idolize my blackness. So I, I subjugate it. I, I make it bow. You're white. You're Pacific Islander. So there's a sense in which, yes, I, I revel in that, but I don't idolize that. That doesn't become a barrier for me to get to know people. So my identity is in the gospel. There's grace there. Yes, there's male and female. But what he's saying here is these differences don't divide us. I am who I am by the grace of God. He saved me by his grace. And when I rest in that, there's no racism. So again, you show me a racist Christian that's an oxymoron. And at the same time, I'll show you someone who's not resting in grace. Do you you know how foolish racism is? Boasting in something you had no control over. Can we go here? There's no male or female. So he's getting into this whole gender thing. So yes, the whole Me Too movement, praise God, that's coming to the fore. But we've got to be careful on either extreme. Men who use their masculinity to lord over women and to be abusive towards them emotionally, physically, whatever way, is deplorable. It is a failure to understand the gospel. And again, I'll serve notice. If you're a man here abusing a woman, we don't play that. We have a ministry of six foot nine, 300 pound men who'd love to lay hands on you and not for prayer. We don't roll like that here. We honor women. But women, you also need to hear the other extreme. Part of the problem with the feminist movement is an overreaction to the abuses of some knucklehead men. So now I am elevating my identity as a woman over my identity in Christ. Either extreme is out of step with the gospel. Here's another one, and I'll, I'll just raise it. I don't know all the answers to it. Some of you are here today, and you are deeply confused as it relates to your gender. Your body says one thing, but how you feel says another. It's not for me to figure all that out and wade into it. But I believe the body of Christ should welcome you. Again, it just blows my mind. Let let, let me get this straight. You can be confused gender-wise. If I understand the gospel, Jesus Christ died for everyone. You can be a member of the kingdom of God, but can't belong to a local church. Email me at rshell at alcf. There's no slave nor free. 
This is class stuff here. We live in the most affluent place in the country, if not the world. Some of you are boasting over your identity as an employee of Google, as an employee of Facebook or some tech company, acting as if it was your intelligence and your social network that got you to where you're at. You can't sit and tell me that if God created you as an orphan in Rwanda, you would have landed where you're at. So be humble. Stop thanking God that you live where you live. Paul is very clear. What do you have that you did not receive? But for the grace of God, I could have been born in the deep south in 1853 as a black man enslaved. I have no control over this. So I need to drink deeply out of the grace of God and leverage whatever gifts he's given me to help others well. That's what a community who drinks deeply of the grace of God looks like. So I'm with a pastor friend of mine the other day, the other week. He pastors in Arizona. And forgive this analogy. I know it's very inflammatory for some of you, but I don't mean it that way. At his church in Arizona, if you know anything about Arizona, of course, the immigration issue is a hot-button issue. He pastors a very large church in, in Arizona. And at this church, there's a lot of undocumented immigrants. And there's also some people who work for ICE. And he's saying, he's saying to a room of us, he goes, man, one of the guys there who works for ICE, is it ICE or ICE? ICE. He works for ICE. He's just every single week. He knew there's undocumented people there. Pastor, I need you to tell them they don't belong here. They got to get out of here. They got to get out of here. They got to get out of here. They got to get out. They don't belong here. They don't belong here. They don't belong here. Pastor says, look, that might be the government's job to do that, but we're the church of Jesus Christ. He began to talk to them about grace and what that looks like. And, and just, he just said to him in very loving ways, if that's the one note you're going to play, you may not want to come back here. He says, so the Spirit of God got, to, got, got a hold of his heart and life. And this pastor told me, I'll never forget, it was communion Sunday. And the way they do communion is how we do communion here. There's tables all down front and people come to the tables. And people are starting to come to the tables. And this guy, he's actually got his ice uniform on. He's got to go to work right after service. He's got a t-shirt with ice right on the back of it. He's sitting there and he sees a young lady who he knows is undocumented. The spirit of God prompts him. And he gets up from his seat goes to the communion table, which is celebrating the grace of God and drapes his arm around her. And he showed us a beautiful picture of an undocumented immigrant being loved on by someone who works for ICE. 
Now, don't hear this from any political perspective about whether or not they should be deported. What what I'm trying to get you to understand is in heaven, there will be undocumented immigrants. So if you got a problem with them here, you're going to have a problem. You're going to spend all eternity with them. It's time for us to stop being so doggone divided and tribal. When I drink deeply of grace, no racism, no classism, no gender stuff. We're all one. That's what grace does. It levels the playing field. Now, Father, in the name of Jesus, I bless you in this place today. These are messy issues, Lord God, messy, messy issues. And Lord God, forgive us of our haughty attitudes as we look at people in the house of God and say, what are you doing here? When the real question is, what is any of us doing here? We are all here, God, by your grace. Thank you for your grace. Your grace that has saved us, your grace that has washed us. Your grace that has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for your grace. We receive your grace in this place today. We rest in it today, Lord God. So God, would you release us from the bondage of the law? Yes, there is a place to do things. Scripture is very clear. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You you call us to a standard. Husbands are to love their wives. And wives are to submit to their husbands. And children are to obey their parents. And you call us, Lord God, to, to sexual purity. These are things you call us to. But these are never things we do to earn our way into your good graces. Christ has already done that. So, Father God, right now, here's, here's what I'm asking. Would you save someone's soul today? There's someone here today, I believe, who has not accepted your grace. So, Lord God, would you save someone's soul today? But I also believe there's someone else here today, Lord God, and they have been profoundly convicted that they are actually ungracious in their dealings with other people. They would call themselves followers of you, but... God, they're not really being boulevards of your grace where grace passes through them to others. Would you call sinners to repent and would you add to your church in Jesus' name? Amen. Three calls and we're done. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, you have not received that grace, that grace that changes hearts. I invite you now to receive that grace. Or maybe you're here, you do call yourself a Christian, but the the Spirit of God's been convicting you. There's someone in your life that you're just going, I've been unforgiving there. I have not been gracious there. And I just want prayer. God would help me to be a boulevard, not a cul-de-sac of His grace, but a boulevard of His grace. Someone's here today and maybe you don't belong to a good Bible teaching church, a community of people, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational community of, of people who are trying to live this thing out. I'd love to be your pastor. We'd love to be your family. As the prayer team and elders come, we want to invite you to come. Would you come? Would you come right now? Would you? Would you just grab the hand of the person next to you? There's a sweet, sweet sense of the Spirit of God in this place today. And I want to read this over you one more time. 
Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Father, we receive that declaration today. And we rest in your grace today that you see us as an heir. You've got good things in store for us, Lord God. And so, Father God, we commit ourselves to stop acting like an employee, to stop acting like a slave, and to start resting in our sonship, in our daughtership in you. Do it, Father God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You are sent. God bless you. You have a good day. You're perfect. You're perfect.